You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters, because accounting matters. On today's episode, I sat down with Adam and Julie to talk about software costs. As our world becomes increasingly digital, this becomes increasingly relevant. So we figured our listeners would enjoy learning a little more about the ins and outs of accounting for software costs. Now, the audio on this episode wasn't the best, so please bear with us. Sometimes in this digital world, we have to record over Zoom, and that's not always easy. We hope you enjoy the episode and learn something new. This is Sarah Cage, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's National Quality Leader, and we are excited to welcome back Julie Avalanet, a senior manager in our national quality team. And I watched The Matrix for the first time ever this week. I know I'm 22 years late to the party, but now I have software and all things digital in my brain. So I figured we should talk about software costs and turn it into accounting for The Matrix. (laughs) Adam, will you start us off? I know there seems to be a growing number of technology offerings to assist a business in running their operations nowadays whether that means they're building their own custom software or website, or maybe engaging a third party for a service on the cloud. Maybe they're utilizing digital financial services. Is there a difference in how to account for these different software costs? Yeah, there is. So, you know, whether an entity acquires or they develop and implement their own software, or maybe acquire and implement a cloud-based solution, like you mentioned, um, you know, there's a lot of different guidance that can apply to the various costs. Um, So it's really important to like understand kind of what's the purpose of what they're acquiring, where the expenditures are, because there is different guidance depending on which bucket you fall into. Um, And, you know, so that being said, I guess I should caveat, you know, we we won't cover all the different aspects of um, capital expenditures rated related to, you know, technology and software, because we'd probably be here way longer than most people want to listen to. So, you know, if you do have instances where you're incurring costs for software that you plan to actually sell, license, or market, we won't cover that today, but, you know, look to ASC 985 for guidance there. Or if you're developing software that's used in, you know, any research and development topics, um, you know, follow ASC 730 for that. So putting those aside, you know, what we'll, we'll look at today is kind of three different buckets where there is, you know, differentiated guidance and U.S. GAAP on how to account for those expenditures. And this relates to internal use software, um, cloud computing arrangements, which, as you've mentioned, are becoming very, very, very popular, um, and then website development costs as well. Okay, so can we start by giving a flyby summary of each of those buckets we mentioned, maybe starting with internal use? Yeah, so internal use, you know, sounds exactly um, like what it is. So it's essentially software that a company develops or they obtain for their own internal use. So, you know, very common example is a, a large ERP system that isn't on a cloud is a, is, a, is a form of internal use software. You know, moving along to some of the other buckets I mentioned we'll cover today. So cloud computing arrangements, you know, those are, you often hear people refer to these as software as a service or SaaS, or now there's PaaS and IaaS and all these other as a service arrangements. Um, where you're essentially getting a software service and that's being provided, you know, some through some type of hosting arrangement. Um, and there is similar guidance between internal use um, software as well as certain costs incurred with software and a service arrangements um, that would apply between both. And then that third bucket that I mentioned that we'll touch on today is, is related to those website costs. Um, and there are some similar principles 
that um, you know accounting for website development costs and internal use software um, share. And so we'll we'll cover that as well today. Okay, so let's take an even deeper dive. Um, what qualifies as internal use software? Yeah, so there's basically two characteristics that um, have to be met for um, software costs to be considered internal use. Um, so obviously the biggest one is that either the software you acquired or if you're developing it internally or you're maybe acquiring something but then modifying it, it has to really be just done solely for the company's own internal needs. Um, really nothing in anticipation of trying to then take it to market. So that kind of leads me into the second characteristic is that during that development or that modification, you really can't have any plans in place um, that you're making this these modifications or developing this software to market that externally, whether it's to you know sell a license or sell a product itself. You, you can't have any substantive plans for that. My uh, judgment alarm just went off when you said no substantive plans. So could you talk a little bit about the judgment that's involved with that? Yeah, so substantive plan is basically, you know, when you've actually got kind of a, an outline of how you would take that software solution um, and have it ultimately reach whoever those prospective customers might be. So you've, you know, established what the marketing and sales channel might look like, you know, whether you be selling something direct to consumers or maybe you're you know, you anticipate selling something through a wholesaler or something like that. Also, implementation of that plan has to be reasonably possible. One thing to keep about is that, you know, if an entity has a pattern in the past of externally marketing um, software products, you know, that they originally developed um, that were internal use, it's a strong indicator that it really precludes them from being able to say something is going to be internal use software. And really they need to follow that guidance for software that's intended to be sold, leased, or marketed. And like I said, that's, we won't touch on that today, but you know, if, if that is where you fall with your uh, expenditures related to software, then again, look to ASC 985. All right. Well, my judgment alarm went off again. You said the words reasonably possible. I'm not going to let you get off that easy. So how should someone think about whether something is reasonably possible? Yeah. So the, again, this relates to that plan as whether it's reasonably, reasonably possible of implementation, which basically means, hey, is the chance of that plan, you know, occurring, is it more than remote, but less than likely? So it's, it's not a huge threshold to kind of fall into that reasonably possible check the box. Yeah, we've met that. So just keep that in mind. It's it's more than remote, but like I said, it's not less than likely, which is what you often hear people refer to when they say something is probable. You know, it's it's kind of that more than likely threshold you hear in other parts of GAP. So it's it's less than that for sure to trip this. Yeah, and they wrote that one to be clear as mud, right? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> what about cloud computing or hosting arrangements? Could they qualify as internal use software? They could, um, you know, depending on the facts and circumstances of your arrangement, um, you could have something that's characterized as a cloud computing or software as a service, hosting arrangement, all those terms are kind of synonymous with each other. You know, you don't see it quite as often. Most of them do qualify as service type contracts, but um, it is important to evaluate the, the terms and conditions of your arrangement because there's essentially two factors that have to be evaluated um, and both have to be met in order to qualify that 
that hosting arrangement as internal use software. So the first one is basically the customer has to have the, the right to take possession of that software at any time during that hosting period. And their right to take that can't come with significant penalty. Um, and then in addition to that, it has to be actually feasible that the customer could run that software independently, either on its own hardware, or they could you know, contract with some other provider um, unrelated to the, the original vendor that could host the software for them. So if either of those aren't met, then your, uh, your cloud computing software as a service arrangement would not qualify as internal use software. Um, and those factors may sound familiar to, to some people that have dealt with, like I said, the, um, the guidance related to software to be sold, licensed, or marketed, because it's, it's the same criteria, more or less, that's outlined in ASC 985. So again, look at the guidance. You know, it, there is some judgment in there to evaluate, um, but assuming you meet both of those criteria, then the costs you know, incurred with that arrangement could be capitalized as an intangible asset, similar to other internal use software. So backing up a little bit, can you unpack that first factor when we say cannot come with significant penalty? What do we mean when we say that? Yeah, so when we're talking about significant penalty, there's kind of two things to keep in mind. So one is um, really kind of on the cost side. So could you take delivery of that software without significant direct or incremental cost to your organization? And so, you know, this could include things like, you know, forfeited hosting fees that maybe you've already paid, or maybe there's some type of termination penalty or fee that's you know included in the arrangement if you were to do this. Um, so you kind of have to look at what kind of costs would be incremental to, to taking possession of that software. Um, and you know, as a guideline, when you're trying to measure like what's significant and looking at those costs is generally what we see in practice is if you know, the penalty is 10% or more than the total contract fees, it's usually a strong indicator that the costs are significant. Putting the numbers aside, you could also have a significant penalty um, if you're really just kind of looking at the use of the software. And what I, what I mean by that is, you know, companies have to evaluate by taking the software in-house whether or not they would kind of receive a significant decline in the utility or function of that software. So, Maybe when the vendor is hosting it, it has all these other functionalities and uses, but when, if the company were to take possession and, you know, use it on their own systems or through some other provider, you know, it, it doesn't come with all the bells and whistles. And so the company would have a significant decline in the ability to use that software. That could also be viewed as a significant penalty. That makes sense. And I think you also mentioned that both factors, both criteria need to be met. So what happens if both aren't met? Yeah. And like I said, this is, I would say more, more often than not, a lot of them do not qualify um, for one of the various reasons we kind of talked about. So if you don't meet both of those criteria, then basically that arrangement is really just a service contract. All you're doing is receiving services from that vendor. Um, you don't have possession of the software, but instead you're just paying a service fee to access and use their software as needed. You know, they're providing it to you via the internet or some type of dedicated line. And so the accounting for that is basically like any other service contract you have. So you're, you're basically going to expense the fees you pay for that service, you know, and it's going to be, you know, according to the payment terms of the contract, but the expense will be over the contract term. 
All right, and let's address the third bucket of software costs. Is there any overlap between the criteria for internal use software and website development? Yeah, there is. So there's you know various stages of developing a website if you kind of think about what all goes into it. So there's you know, the website application, looking at the infrastructure, you know, what, what's necessary to kind of run and operate the website, you know, then you think about kind of just the visual impacts of the website. So developing graphics and layouts and things like that. Um, so similar to like the criteria we have for internal use software, um, you know, the software underlying the website needs to be developed for the company's internal needs as well. Um, if you're going to capitalize it, um, and really you can't have any substantive plans there as well to try to sell, you know, what you develop um, for that, that website externally, which I think is pretty common that you're, you're not developing the website to be sold. You know, a lot of times that's if you build templates of websites and then you sell those templates to other people or something like that. But generally most people are developing their own website for their business's own purposes. So, um, you know, this one is, I think is a little less tricky to, to navigate compared to the cloud computing guidance. So we've clarified those three buckets. We have internal use software, cloud computing, and web, website development. Julie, I've been leaving you out. So this one's coming to you. Okay. With each of those buckets, how do we know what can be capitalized? Yeah, so we'll talk about internal use software and website development since they're pretty similar in that the cost that you incur could be capitalized depending on the nature of the cost and the project stage during which the cost was incurred. But if you've ever been involved in developing software or a website, you know that a plan never goes according to plan. Um, you know, you may not necessarily follow a continuous order of events with one big final implementation at the end. You might have multiple cross-functional teams working at the same time, but at different speeds. Maybe you're executing just little pieces of the project at a time and therefore continuously adapting the project as needed. So ultimately a greater emphasis should be placed on the nature of the cost. Um, and of course the documentation supporting it rather than the timing of when the cost is incurred. That's helpful. And what about for hosting an arrangement where a license isn't transferred, but rather is viewed as a service contract? What can be capitalized there? So if you have a hosting arrangement that's considered a service contract, then generally the only thing that you can capitalize are the implementation costs. So these are your configuration costs, setup costs, implementation costs, and other upfront costs. Um, and that service piece of the hosting arrangement would continue to be expensive incurred, like Adam mentioned. Um, you know, the FASB released ASU 28-15, which confirmed this accounting treatment, and it was actually effective for all entities at the beginning of this year, 2021. That being said, if you are going to capitalize implementation costs, you would actually have to hold it to those same restrictions as if the hosting arrangement that's a service contract was an internal use software project. Okay, and you mentioned that the stage of a project really drives how the accounting for certain costs are treated. So what project stages do we typically see in developing internal use software? Yeah, so the guidance breaks it down into three stages. The first is your preliminary project stage. That's basically where you're doing all of your brainstorming to, um, before you make your final software selection. This includes determining what kind of technology you even need and also identifying and evaluating your software options. Uh, the second stage would be your application development stage, 
This is where you spend the time actually developing the software. So this would include designing the software, including any software configuration and software interfaces, as well as coding, installing the software to the hardware and the testing that goes along with that. And then that last stage is called post-implementation operation, the mouthful. Um, that stage consists primarily of all of your training and uh, maintenance of the software. So any costs that you incur during the preliminary project stage and the post-implementation operation stage are generally expensed, uh, whereas the costs that you incur during the application development stage are generally capitalized. That's helpful. So anything that starts with a P, not anything else you can capitalize. Yeah, you could think of it that way, yeah. <laughs> Uh, what about the different stages for developing a website? Yep, so for developing a website, you have five stages. You have the planning stage, which again, this is basically your brainstorming stage. Then you have your application and infrastructure development stage. At this point, this is where you're um, acquiring or developing the hardware and the software that will operate the website. Uh, the third stage is graphics development. This is when you're developing the design and the layout of the website, how you're going to make it look, um, all of the uh, initial creation of the graphics that might involve coding of software as well. The fourth stage is your content development. This would be developing or acquiring the information that will be on the website, and it might include um, integrating databases or even coding databases directly onto the website. And then that last stage is the operating stage. So this is similar to internal use software. It includes training, maintenance, updates, and other administrative activities that are required to run the website. So generally, costs that you incur in the planning stage would be expensive as incurred. Um, any costs that you incur in the other stages would require more judgment based on the nature of the cost. Um, and so when you think about that, you would actually apply the same line of thinking as you did for the uh, nature of capitalizable cost for internal use software and apply that to uh, the nature of the cost for website development as well. Okay, so it's not a hard and fast rule on whether you capitalize or expense a cost based on the project stage? Yep, so we talked about how greater weight is placed on the nature of the cost incurred more than at which project stage the cost was incurred. And this is because projects usually aren't a smooth journey with one hard stop. And in real life, you'll probably um, do your initial implementation of the software. And at a later point, you might make an update that adds the functionality of software and therefore is capitalizable. Um, you may, for another example, you might be in the thick of doing your application development stage, but then realize you need to revise your plan and then incur uh, additional planning costs that are typically incurred during the preliminary project stage and are expensed. So while we like to consider the stage that the project is in, we care more about the nature of the cost that's incurred for sure. So what are some examples <laughs> of what is capitalized versus expense based on the nature of the cost? Yeah, so this time we'll group internal use software and implementation costs with the hosting arrangement since the guidance is pretty much the same here. So capitalizable costs would include any of the costs of the materials or services that are used in developing or obtaining the software. This could be the fees that you paid to third parties in order for them to develop the software, including any testing that they perform. 
Um, if you're purchasing the software outright from a third party, the cost incurred there, um, any cost of integration with your on-premise software, coding, configuration, customization, any cost that you incur to develop or obtain the software that will eventually allow you to access uh, or convert old data with the new system. Um, you would also capitalize any travel expenses incurred by your employees if, if it was directly associated with developing the software. And along with that, you can also capitalize the payroll and payroll related costs for those employees who are directly involved with the software project. And when I say payroll related costs, that includes you know, their employee benefits, even share-based compensation. Um, and another cost that you could capitalize are um, interest costs that you incur while developing your software. What about the other side? What are costs that are generally expensed for internal use software? Yeah, so here you would probably see your typical general administration overhead costs, any training costs, costs for maintenance and minor modifications. Um, if you experience any inefficiencies or operating losses incurred, that would be expense. Uh, any data conversion costs, any fees that you pay to third parties for um, consulting on general systems and control reviews, as well as your general project planning costs. Those would all be expense. And then what about website development? I know we already talked about how these have slightly different phases, but how does that relate to what costs can and cannot be capitalized? Yeah, so for website development, you're probably going to have costs related to acquiring or developing the software that will eventually operate the website. And you'll also have costs for developing the initial graphics for that software. So these costs are either capitalizable or expense, uh, subject to the same guidance that you would apply for internal use software. Um, and then some other costs that you could capitalize for website development would include the cost to obtain and register an internet domain, uh, any modifications to graphics after you launch your website, if it actually it represents an enhancement of the website, um, any costs to develop or obtain software that are used to integrate a database, the website, any costs to purchase or develop the software tools as long as they're not used in R&D, um, and also any other costs that are related to enhancing or upgrading the website that would result in added functionality or features of the website. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there's a lot of costs that can be expensed as well. Um, this includes your website hosting fees, uh, any modifications to graphics that represent really just maintenance of the website, um, data conversion costs, any cost to input content into the website, cost to register the website with any internet search engines, um, and any cost to generally just run the run the website, you know, after you initially launch it. Yeah, I think the one thing to maybe add here is like there's a ton of different costs that can lend itself to one way or the other versus how you account for the um, the cost itself, so capitalize or expense, and really it comes down to like good documentation of the company and, you know, really have an understanding of like what costs are being incurred, what they directly relate to, because there could be components of things that maybe have an element that should be expensed or should be capitalized. And especially when it comes to people's time that you're trying to capitalize time on for projects and trying to understand what did they actually do and when they did it. 
Um, so documentation is really critical uh, to make sure you have good records of all this stuff to understand where the accounting line should fall between a capitalized and expense. Sense. We love documentation, don't we? <laughs> well, your yeah, your auditors will make it will make it much easier for you. I promise. If you've got this all kind of all buttoned up for them pretty nicely. <laughs> um, what happens if you go live with your website or your software, but then at a later date you upgrade that? Is there like a significance threshold there for that upgrade, or um, I guess what happens if they do upgrade their software or website? Yeah, so I can take a look at this one. Um, you know, it really comes down to when you have upgrades and enhancements, just what exactly that upgrade or enhancement did. Um, so when there's upgrade and enhancement that add functionality to an existing, you know, software or whatever, um, you can capitalize those costs. On the other hand, if you you have enhancements or you do some minor upgrades or things like that, but it really doesn't change the overall functionality or it doesn't really extend the overall useful life of that asset itself, then you know, we generally view those types of expenditures as more of just maintenance activities. And so those are just expensed as you incur them. So like I said, there is some judgment here. So you, again, it, it's really understanding what the cost was incurred for and you know, what actually changed. And when we kind of refer to additional functionality, it's really taking a look at you know, the software you had before the upgrades and enhancements and what you have after and are there new things the software can do or perform that it couldn't do previously you know that that's an indication that you, you've added functionality to the, the software itself so those costs could be capitalized and now what if there's kind of a maintenance cost and an upgrade cost happening simultaneously how does a company know what to capitalize versus expense yeah so if you're looking at and this happens quite often is, you know, you'll have someone providing a service and it could include a significant upgrade, but then some just routine maintenance. Um, you know, generally you're supposed to look at whether it's possible to separate um, those costs, you know, obviously considering time and effort and things like that between what is a maintenance and what is maybe more of a, a significant upgrade. Um, if you aren't able really to decipher between that when you're looking at the costs incurred, then you know, GAP's going to tell you, you basically should default to that all those expenses or all those costs should be expensed rather, and that you really shouldn't try to capitalize anything. And I, I want to go back to another cost you mentioned earlier that's capitalizable, um, payroll and payroll related costs. So how does a company practically determine the payroll amount? Yeah. And this is, this is where I probably was jumping the gun a bit on is like, again, it kind of comes down to good documentation policies that you have in place. So when it comes to people's time, you know, particularly when they're working on like an internal use software development project, you know, they, it's best to have standardized policies in place that explain what are capitalizable payroll costs. Um, you know, those are communicated to employees, to accounting, um, to HR, so that everyone really knows um, what time is you know, spent working on that internal use software specifically, you know, the, the policy itself is going to go into a lot of the accounting guidance. So it's going to kind of explain the different, you know, project stages and phases and understand, you know, within each of those stages, what are certain activities that employees could be performing that would be capitalizable, um, you know, employees or, you know, maybe some type of time tracking system should have, you know, the ability to kind of track where that time is spent. 
you know, so that people can, can keep an eye on it for just, you know, accuracy there. And then, you know, there'll be some type of mechanism in place where management will monitor completeness of time, review the accuracy of where that time was charged and, you know, make sure everything looks okay. Um, you know, once all that time's in, then, you know, obviously accounting's got to take it and figure out based on an employee's standard work week, you know, what kind of conversion rate they might apply to allocate the, you know, that employee's payroll costs or, you know, benefit costs related to their employment um, between the different categories, you know, and when we're talking about benefits here, it could be, you know, things that include, um, you know, other items such as bonuses, you know, if they got any type of commission payments, you know, your payroll taxes, things of that nature that also are kind of lumped into overall payroll type costs. Uh, so then the capitalizable costs are added to the company's depreciating subledger and their ERP system. And these costs then would be segregated by the associated internal use software that the employee worked on. Um, or in the case of multiple softwares uh, with different useful lives, they may be allocated amongst, you know, several things. And we know that all good things must come to an end. So how does an entity know when to start and when to stop capitalizing costs of a project? Yeah, so let me begin where they actually start capitalizing costs for internal use software. So generally, there's two things that'll happen. So one will be that the preliminary project stage should be completed. And the second thing that happens is that management or, you know, the body with the relevant authority that authorizes and commits to funding, you know, a software development project um, has done so. And it's probable that the project itself will be completed and the software um, that they ultimately develop will be, you know, created to perform the functions that it was intended to do. Um, you know, the authorization and commitments you know, that that's done for this software project, you know, it could be in a contract um, with also other third party developers. Um, and so if that's the case, you would expect to have approval of the expenditures related to that, um, to those third party developers that will be used in developing the software. And then when it comes time to figuring out when you should stop capitalizing costs that you're incurring on a project, um, you know, this generally happens uh, when management either concludes that it's no longer probable that the software project itself will be completed or it's not going to be placed in service. Or on the other hand, you know, the software project is essentially substantially complete and in the software itself is ready for its intended use. And Julie, can you walk our listeners through the subsequent accounting after these costs are capitalized? Sure. So again, here I'll group internal use software and website development together since they're pretty similar. So if you capitalize costs for either of those two buckets, you would amortize it just like you would any other fixed asset. Uh, you would determine an estimated useful life for each internal use software or each website and then reassess it on a recurring basis. Um, and you know, since the digital world evolves pretty quickly, Typically, we see no more than two to five years as an initial useful life, unless uh, it's known that the software will be retired or replaced, or maybe the website will be overhauled in an even shorter time frame. Uh, and on the other hand, the useful life of the capitalized costs of a hosting arrangement would actually follow the guidance for determining a lease term in accordance with ASC 842. Um, and so under ASC 42, the term would be the fixed non-cancelable term of the hosting arrangement, plus any periods that are covered by the option to extend or terminate the hosting arrangement based on reasonable certainty. Um, so generally we see that once the costs are capitalized, 
they're amortized on a straight line basis once the software or the hosting arrangement or the website is ready for its intended use. And if it has multiple modules or components, amortization can begin at separate times. But it's important to note that if the functionality of one of those components relies on the completion of the other components, then you wouldn't begin your amortization until all of the components that are involved are ready for their intended use. And if these costs are amortized, then can they still be assessed for impairment? Yep. You would actually apply the same guidance in ASC 360, uh, consistent with other long life assets. Are there any common impairment indicators that we see for internal use software hosting arrangements and websites? Yeah, so some common indicators would be, let's say the hosting arrangement will be terminated earlier than planned, or management decides they're going to overhaul the website earlier than planned, or maybe there's a significant change that is made or will be made to the software program. Um, you could also look at the costs. Um, if the cost of developing or modifying your software is significantly uh, exceeding the original budget, that could be an indicator for impairment. If you find that the software, the website might no longer even be expected to be completed or placed into service, that would be an indicator. And some things to look out for here would be, you may find that there's no additional expenditures that are being budgeted or incurred. Uh, you might have programming difficulties that just aren't being resolved timely, which could mean that management tends to kick it to the curb, um, significant cost overruns. Maybe there's new technologies in the marketplace that management intends to just go outright and purchase instead of completing their software project. Um, you could even look at the business segment or the unit to which the software or the website or the hosting arrangement relates to. And if that business segment or unit is unprofitable and has been or will be discontinued, that's an indicator as well. All right. And then are there any unique presentation considerations here? Yep. So uh, presentation for internal use software and websites are, it's pretty consistent with other long-lived assets. So nothing new there. However, if you have any hosting arrangements that are service contracts, you would have to disclose the nature of that arrangement. Uh, if you have any capitalized implementation costs, you would treat it as if, you, as if it was a separate major class of a depreciable asset under 360. Uh, on the balance sheet, if you have capitalized implementation costs, you would present it in the same line item as any prepayment of fees for the associated hosting arrangement. Uh, on the income statement, you would present uh, any amortization of those implementation costs in the same line item as the expense for the fees for the associated hosting arrangement. So it's important to note here that amortization of implementation costs wouldn't be included in your depreciation and or amortization expense, which sounds confusing, but that's the way the guidance is written. Um, on the cash flow statement, you would classify your cash flows from capitalized implementation costs similarly to cash flows for the fees for the associated hosting arrangement, which is generally in operating activities. Awesome. Well, that brings us all the way from assessment to presentation, which means it's time to wrap this episode up. Um, I yep. think my personal favorite part was learning about um, people needing to track their time if they're working on a software implementation. I think that's where being proactive can really help. And hopefully we've 
we've helped some of our listeners know where they can be proactive if they go through a software implementation um, or are working on a project that would fall under this guidance. So thank you, Adam and Julie, for taking the time to walk us through that. And thank you, listeners, for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.